Welcome to Drone Futures, a series about how drones are reshaping how the world is perceived, how people are governed, and how power is enacted and resisted. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, a researcher on drones, war and culture at the University of New South Wales. Drone Futures is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bedigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past and present and express our solidarity with the movements for Black and Indigenous lives. This episode features Catherine Chandler, author of a book based on fascinating archival research called Unmanning, How Humans, Machines and Media Perform Drone Warfare. I've wanted to talk to Kate about her work ever since I first encountered it. Her approach mixes close attention to the materiality of drone technologies with a keen sense of the role of discourse and imagination in their development from before World War II to the end of the Soviet Union. Kate is an assistant professor in the Culture and Politics program in the School of Foreign Service, Georgetown University, and she received her PhD from the Department of Rhetoric at the University of California, Berkeley. You're going to hear a live talk from Kate shortly, but she also joined me to discuss her work more generally. Kate Chandler, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. To kick things off, what brought you to researching drones? So I have been long interested in the sort of intersection of violence, vision and landscape. Um, And I... uh, I attended the MA program in cultural analysis at the University of Amsterdam. And I had a wonderful um, master's thesis advisor who really let me do a creative experimental project. Um, And I thought about um, violence in various different landscapes in Europe and the United States. So I visited um, West Virginia and I looked at the coal mining Um, I went to Bosnia and looked at um, landmines from the Bosnian War. Um, I went to Palestine um, and I went to Turkey and I looked at gas pipelines. Um, And I started my PhD in rhetoric and I thought I was going to continue with sort of violence and vision in landscapes. Um, And one of the first places I was going to go in order to think about this was the Nevada nuclear test site. Um, And one of the things um, that uh, is really salient, and I I don't think it's discussed enough actually, is that the Creech drone base is carved out of the Nevada nuclear test site. So literally the military industrial place, the military industrial site Um, it's just military, but industry was also, of course, part of the tests um, where all of the nuclear weapons tests took place. A corner of that has been converted into the Creech Air Force Base. Um, And uh, I was there actually with a group of activists who were protesting or carrying on the traditional protest of the nuclear weapons who had become aware of drones because at Creech Air Force Base, they were flying test flights with the drones. And this was in 2009. And so there's very little information about drone warfare. And it was sort of these 
fuzzy ideas that remote controlled weapons that were being flown from Nevada were um, waging war in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, and um, I remember the first talks that I gave, I actually you know, had to parse this out a couple of times for people. And, and I was asked if I, what I was describing was science fiction, right? Not the literal actual practices. And so, um, I was really intrigued and it was really hard to find out anything about drones um, at that point. And so I started doing my research and I ended up doing historical research because it was just so hard to figure out anything about the contemporary at that particular time. Um, I don't think I would do this today, right? Like it was so interesting then because you know, it was not on anyone's radar. People were not thinking about this. I mean, people asked me serious questions about why I was writing a dissertation about this. Um, and, uh, you know, the scholarship is all caught up with me. It took me a long time to produce my book. <laughs> Tons of other books came out in the meantime. Um, uh, and, uh, but, but, I, but it is really this problem of, you know, the ways in which we can't see violence. I think that, I, you know, and the, the kinds of, the kinds of visible invisibilities that we might associate with, you know, the history of nuclear weapons um, is something that is, that drones are a part of that history as I will talk about in this talk that I'm going to give. Um, and also, um, um, Right, the ways in which you know this idea of drone vision is is entangled with um, all kinds of geopolitical domination. So, so in the talk uh, that folks are going to hear, um, your focus is is going to be on some, among other things, on some drone experiments in the Pacific and uh, and in the continental United States. Um, but can you give us an overview of your of your research um, more broadly? So yeah, so my research more broadly um, is works through a series of um, drone projects that were dismissed as failures. Um, and so um, these are drones that were developed between 1936 and 1992 that through the, in the official military documentation that was associated with them at the time, these projects were described as drones that didn't end up working. Um, and I find that this story of failure is really illuminating for the rhetorical tropes, the figures, um, the imaginations, the ideals that we end up using to describe, it really resonates with how we describe drone warfare today. And so um, my project is um, inspired by a kind of Foucaultian genealogy. Um, I, I'm really interested in this like ongoing history of failure that is the basis of contemporary drone aircraft, but it also is the ways in which these historical cases and the ways in which they make specific, they show the sort of specific assumptions, the ways in which the drone is animated by a context, a certain set of political actors, a certain set of ideals that might cause us to ask a different set of questions about what is happening with um, drone, drone warfare today. And in the process of sort of excavating what the drone does, I'm interested in how this figure of unmanning always ties back to a man, right? And the ways in which that man 
um, draws on various different ideals of race, gender, and nation. Um, and in this way, I'm inspired by feminist science and science and technology studies, um, my training in rhetoric, um, uh, as well as um, post-colonial theories. So in addition to being uh, a, a rather brilliant scholar of, of media and, and the development of technology, you're also uh, a practicing artist. Can you talk a little bit about your arts practice and how that um, might intersect with your research? I have uh, long had a parallel art practice um, to my academic work. Um, and uh, I did a couple of residencies while I was working on my PhD that continued to sort of deconstruct the ways in which um, drones were tied to a certain imaginary of the world through forms of collage, um, staged photo photographs, um, um, and those appear in Humanity, um, a, a journal of um, human rights and humanitarianism and international development, if people are interested in them. Um, and I've also had a performance art practice. So I was a part of um, the stage crash that was done by Ricardo Dominguez and Ian Paul. I did it under the alias Jane Stevens because I was still doing... Um, I was still trying to, to keep myself under the radar at the time. Um, but the most recent project that I've now been working on for three or four years, um, which I'm really excited about, is a collaboration with the artist Hilary Mushkin. Um, and I met her at a geography conference and she really changed how I did my art practice. Um, and she has been working in the medium of drawing to think about technologies. Um, and I went to her studio and I, for the first time, so I did a lot of work with performance and video and uh, photography, but really tried to draw what I thought the drone was. And um, we've been drawing like the aerial views that the drone shows um, in a kind of like Via Selman's inspired kind of way, although ours are much sketchier and not as sort of perfect as Via Selman's are. Um, and uh, we have a, a collaborative project that's called Drone Archive. And Drone Archive for me is kind of the answer to some of the problems raised in my book project. Um, so it's the kind of question of like, what, what do we do? You know, what, what is this form of collaborative human action? What is a public space? Like how would we imagine a non-mechanical world? Um, and I think there's something about the practice of drawing and the slowness and the deliberateness of it that, um, we're hoping is um, sort of a way of rethinking how we think of objectivity, how we think of the mechanical eye, how we think of um, the drone. So uh, it's a project that I really am super excited about, um, but will probably be ongoing for quite some time. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so one of the interesting things about drone studies um, as a sort of transdisciplinary field is the sheer breadth of perspectives and their associated methodologies. And so your 
research, at least in your um, in your book, depends heavily on on archival research. But can you talk a little bit about your research process and uh, and about the methods that you bring to bear? Yeah, so I I do think that my research methods are defined a lot by um, rhetoric um, and the broad perspective of rhetoric that comes from the University of California, Berkeley, which includes images always as a part of rhetoric, right? So um, that to think about, right, images, media, text, right, they're all forms of rhetoric and the close reading, careful analysis of them reveals all kinds of things about the operations of power um, and the ways in which we structure subjectivities, we think about societies, we think about democracy, we think about uh, global relations, we think about militarism. So um, I, one of the great things about the, the training in rhetoric is a real attention to close reading, close looking, um, a detailed analysis of you know what images are doing, what films are doing, what media is doing, and I really try to do this in my research and work. But oftentimes, people who do close reading or looking, right, don't then draw connections to the broader picture. And I really do try to work from those sort of specific and detailed analysis all the way back out to sort of structures of global geopolitical power. So it's pretty challenging. I don't know that I'm always successful, but that is definitely what I'm trying to do in my methodology is really work from the microscopic to the macroscopic. Um, because I think that is what really gives us a sort of richness of our understanding. And, you know, archival materials here are useful for me because they are things that you can closely read and closely look at. Um, uh, and in the talk that you'll see a lot of the slides, you know, draw on the sort of amazing richness of um, what you find if you sort of just keep on looking for things that are cataloged under drone. So what piece of um, drone studies research has most influenced your own thinking on the subject? It was really interesting for you to say earlier that you started this research when there barely was a drone studies to draw upon. Um, so has there been work that has been particularly important for you? The scholarship that I was most interested in replicating is not the right word because that's not what I did, but I, you know, there's a lot of precursors to drone research that I think give us really powerful insights. One is um, McKenzie's Inventing Accuracy. Right, which was an amazing work of science and technology studies that shows us how the idea of accuracy is not some kind of objective measure, but it's you know, organized and created by the very military organizations that then measure the kinds of accuracy that's associated with it. And Inventing Accuracy, I think, goes with a, a series of books that were written by mostly male science and technology studies scholars in the mid 90s. And so the other two that were really important to me are um, Paul Edwards' Closed World and Peter Gallison's article on the ontology of the enemy, um, as well as Donna Haraway's like amazing feminist scholarship on the cyborg manifesto. And I say it would be those set of scholars who I really wanted to think about the drone through a feminist voice and to really bring in some of the ways in which um, this 
they were really describing the end of the Cold War and hadn't gotten this moment of the war on terror, which happened in the 2000s. So I really think this scholarship from the 1990s is so interesting to look at because it imagines as if we are ending, right, this like dichotomous world and, you know, beginning this like world that's going to be whole. And of course, you know, in a matter of a few years, like that divide has been recreated. Um, and so those are the scholars that I sort of saw myself as in conversation with and, 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 and thinking about their work. Um, uh, you know, Teddy Bear Patriarchy is one of my all time favorite articles. Um, and I, again, I think Donna Haraway, what I, she does what I described, right? She works from this diorama and from this diorama in the American Natural History Museum, she sort of excavates out um, all of these sort of broader geopolitical relationships. And so those are, those are the scholars that I sort of saw myself thinking with. Um, yeah. You've spent a long time clearly in the, in the archives and with this project of, of um, unmanning and drone warfare. What's next for you in your research? So I'm doing new drones on the African continent. So um, it sounds like you have some colleagues who I should get in touch with, who I'm excited to hear about what they're doing. Um, I'm doing a couple of, I've been working on case studies. So I went and visited um, the, drone pro, the drone blood delivery project in Rwanda, a drone mapping project in Zanzibar and um, wildlife management projects in South Africa. Um, and broadly I'm, I want to think about this um, other side that I think is very under-theorized of the drone. A lot of our work, including my own, has been focused on drone targeting, right? The drone is constructing a target. And I think the drone does the opposite or the counterpart to this as well. It's not the opposite, it's the counterpart. Um, the drone also creates a public to be protected. Uh, and I think this carries over into these humanitarian, medical um, wildlife management projects, right? Who ends up getting saved and how is this idea of saving a part of um, drone discourse? And so I'm gonna continue the sort of studies of militarism in drones through these civilian projects and think about you know, who, um, who is being saved in the civilian projects um, and try to use that to think um, more about how these might be challenged or disrupted, um, as well as the ways in which militarism pervades everyday life um, and, you know, the so-called application of drones for good um, often relies on an optics that continues to reproduce this idea of some, some are targeted and some are saved. Fantastic. It sounds really exciting. I can't wait to see where your research goes. So thank you very much for, for, for talking with me and, um, and for the talk that folks are about to hear. Thank you. And now, here's Kate Chandler with her talk, A Crash History of Drone Futures. Um, thank you so much for having me join. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C., and just to acknowledge the territory here, this is the 
land of the Nicostia people. Um, Anacostia is one of the, the wards actually in DC. And many of the projects that we'll be talking about were tested at the Navy laboratories in Anacostia. So we can think about the significance of the land we're on um, and the ongoing struggles for justice. So thank you very much for having me. I plan my talk as kind of a conversational overview and I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of drone futures um, and the sort of problems associated with it. Um, and I, as Michael mentioned, I have a number of um, case studies that I'll share with you, which take us back historically, but I wanna share these historical cases with you, not just for the historical relevance, but because I think they are the future. Um, and I want to disrupt the usual temporalities where we think about the future and the past as, as if they're in a line, um, and there is something about the sort of cyclical um, nature of drones. Um, and it, you'll see lots of resonances between these early projects and the contemporary projects. And I wonder if thinking with a different sense of temporality asks us to think about a different kind of question about what drones are doing um, and what they mean, how they're made, um, what is at stake um, in their use. And this, of course, um, deals with militarism, but also extends much more broadly into how we think about machines and politics in everyday life um, and what our notions of control, uh, futurity, time are embedded in the technological systems that we use. Um, one thing that becomes really clear in the projects that I'll share with you today um, is there is an idea of what drone evolution is um, that starts with early experiments in the 1930s and the 1940s and continues through the Cold War. Um, and it imagines a future, a drone future, much like the one that's advocated um, for by drone industry advocates today. Um, but, but in its historical context, we realize the challenges, the troubles, the ways in which these ideas of autonomous systems continue to be tied to human hands and human action. Um, and I really wanna bring us back to the ways in which human action animates unmanning um, and the ways in which race, gender um, and nation fit into this idea of unmanning. So um, let me quickly share with you um, my five theses on drone futures. Unfortunately, um, my picture is going to cover up them, um, but uh, I'm going to just read them out as a set of framing devices for the talk um, and then come back to them, come back to these ideas through uh, various different case studies that I'm going to think about. So the purported inevitability of drones um, is a political and ethical claim, not an outcome of engineering. The ideal of unmanning serves to disavow how human, human action as mechanical advance, it is figured by gender, race, and nation. An all-seeing mechanical eye can also be, like human sight, corrupted and blind. Um, contemporary drone warfare produces a field of war defined by attack and protection. Drone crashes and failures illustrate how this myth is made and the reductive logic it assumes. Drone futures are built on drone failures. Um, and to sort of develop this idea just a little bit more, I want to show you um, a quick video 
of um, early drone flights starting in 1919. Um, and the sort of continuous image that we see here um, is the drone not flying, not functioning, but rather crashing, um, crashing repeatedly as the engineers sort of rush to test it. And in this image, I, I really like how it disrupts the usual iconography that we associate with, with drones, which often are these um, sort of sleek mechanical objects in an empty, deserted space. And in these, this early footage, we get a really different image where we see the engineers and the operators alongside of um, the drones um, as they're being launched and uh, lifting off. So let's just watch it for a second. Okay. Um, so let me go back to the earlier slides just to, um, just to show you this, how this idea of drones as the future um, has been in play for a very long time. Um, and this um, article from uh, August 25th, 1946, that was featured in the New York Times, the drone important of push button war outlines how um, drones are the new war weapon after the end of World War II. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about how this project develops and how it comes to be. But I think it's really relevant that um, in thinking about contemporary drone warfare and particularly drone warfare in the war on terror, we repeated this rhetoric um, again, right? So the drone was this totally new form of warfare that was inaugurated with the war on terror. Um, and these articles remind us that this is a political move. Um, and again, I think tied back to this question of time um, and the ways in which the drone organizes time um, and organizes a kind of forgetting as well. So the idea of technological innovation and the idea of newness with the drone being continuously invented anew, um, it is the sort of harbinger of the future over and over again. Um, and this in part happens because we forget about the ways in which the drone has already been inaugurated as a harbinger of the future. Um, so, this article, of course, presents us with a drone that's very different than uh, the systems that um, are in use at the current moment, um, but are based on early television um, designed by RCA. And I'll get a little bit more into this. Um, these were the ones that were flown at Operation Crossroads. Um, and so for those of you uh, in the Pacific, that of course has a lot of meaning um, not just in terms of the history of, of nuclear weapons development, but in terms of um, displacement of indigenous peoples through um, militarized testing. Um, and then I just had this um, Google Books Ngram viewer because it, again, it sort of really makes this point where we think about the drone as something that is new and as, as just emerging. Um, but if you look at the ways in which the word drone is used in books, and of course this can include um, music, uh, it can include bees, it's not just um, drones 
as we think of them. Um, but the height of drone discourse, uh, according to the Engram viewer, was sometime in the 19, the middle 1940s. So again, this idea that the drone is something totally associated with the contemporary moment um, it really obscures the ways in which the drone also had this moment where it was going to be the future um, just after World War II. And of course that didn't come to be. And, and I think the ways in which it didn't come to be may also ask us questions about what we imagine for drone futures today and the ways in which those imaginaries may already be flawed. Um, and also the ways in which those imaginaries may limit us in terms of really imagining other ways of using technology and other ways of using pilotless systems. So, I want to quickly, I want to get to um, the American Kamikaze and Operation Crossroads because these are, of course, really relevant um, to my discussion and I talk a little bit about Cold War drones as well. Um, but I want to situate um, the discussion of drones also a little bit in the ordinary and the banal. Um, I'm sure this new format of Zoom, probably other speakers have commented on this too, Michael, but um, it does feel very drone-like. Um, we can think about something about the drone aesthetics already built into this kind of talk. Um, so I sitting on my computer screen, um, sharing with others, um, we, much of this technology um, probably contains pieces of military technologies that were actually developed for drones. Um, and um, as I'll discuss later on, um, the American Kamikaze project, which was the drone project um, in World War II, it, it was where they developed um, television technologies that was used in all of the domestic television sets produced by RCA during the sort of quote unquote golden age of television in the 1950s after the end of the war. So um, I think we really might um, think about the drone, not just as uh, an expression of militarism and the ways in which imperialism continues through technological platforms, but also how those same platforms then become part of our ordinary daily experiences um, and are something that we use on a day-to-day -day basis to interact with our friends and family. Um, and, um, and that I think really makes the political and ethical questions we wanna ask about drone aircraft, both more relevant and also I think harder and more complicated to address um, when we recognize the militarism that we are critiquing is part of the same platforms that we are engaging um, with on a day-to-day -day basis. So with this in mind, I wanna to talk to you a little bit about the Denny plane, uh, which was a radio controlled target um, and one of the first drone systems that was um, built. Um, and this was not designed as a military system, although it came to be used as a practice target to train anti-aircraft gunners during World War II. So, Early drones in World War II, while they came to be used as weapons, initially were simulations in order to train um, gunners to shoot down aircraft. And there's something there about the ways in which the drone performs or imagines air warfare and acts as a simulation that for me is really important um, because I think the drone does not just 
um, take a picture of reality, it is producing a simulation of reality. And by looking at the ways in which these early drone drones were literally used to imagine what aerial war was going to be like, we see the ways in which the drone is not just a reaction to the world, but imagining how the world will work. And in this case, imagining how aerial war is going to work. So um, prior to World War II, there were of course aircraft that were being used as um, part of warfare, but they were usually associated with ground forces. And so, one of the big transformations that happens between World War I and World War II is air forces are disconnected from the ground and the sea, um, and that creates a whole new field of war associated with the air. In my book, I'm really concerned with the construction of this new aerial war space um, and what that means and how it's figured and the ways in which the drone is part of this, this, new, this new imaginary. Um, but the aircraft that I'm going to talk about um, was an accidental project and it was described as an accident and it was invented by a Hollywood star. He was a silent film star. His name was Reginald Denny. He was in over 80 films and was an actor for RKO Studios and he loved model airplanes. Um, and basically worked with a couple of sound engineers to create a remote controlled aircraft that he sold in Hollywood to kids. So on the one hand, we're talking about a system, right, that is developed for war and is being imagined um, as sort of representing and standing in for the new, um, the new forms of aerial bombardment. But at the same time, it's also imagined as a toy. It's imagined as a plaything. Um, it's promoted as fun. Here you can see a picture of the um, store on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, and uh, Reginald Denny used his position in RKO um, in order to promote his model airplane. Um, and in promoting the model airplane, um, the local uh, army commander who also was based in Los Angeles, right near Hollywood, um, proposed that these airplanes, these remote controlled airplanes be used as drones in order to train anti-aircraft gunners. So there's a Navy project that I'm going to talk about in just a moment that also is happening at the same time, but this is what basically becomes some of the target drones um, that develop um, during World War II and then are sold after World War II. So by 1944, it's a major business. Um, they are called radio planes, not Denny planes anymore. Um, this is the um, test evaluation of them. And so you can see this sort of drone that's propped up, um, it's released, and then it's used to train gunners how to shoot down aircraft. Um, this is another example of some of the press material that's associated with it. Um, and eventually the Denny plane is acquired by Northrop Grumman, um, and which is a major military industrial contractor in the United States. Um, and it becomes part of Northrop. Um, and by the 1950s, we see the drone as being promoted as the first family of unmanned aircraft used to train men 
evaluate weapon systems and survey enemy territory. And I think this constellation here really marks um, at least two of the aspects that I'm interested in, right? The gendered connotation, right? A family of unmanned aircraft and positioning the unmanned aircraft as part of the family, they're training men, um, they're evaluating the weapon systems and we're using them to survey enemy territory and to protect the nation. Um, so um, I'm gonna talk now a little bit about the competitor project or one of the other projects that was happening simultaneous to the Denny plane. Um, and it became American Kamikaze, a television guided weapon. Um, uh, but it was um, um, it was it was based on um, a project that, as I mentioned in the introduction to my talk, um, uh, in Anacostia by the Navy to develop a radio control target and the RCA approached the Navy about their pilotless airplane and pr proposed that it could be turned into a flying torpedo with an electric eye if they integrated the television system into the pilotless plane. I mean, again, here you can sort of see these artistic renderings of how they thought this was going to happen. This is a picture from 1945. The proposal actually happens a little bit earlier. Um, and you see the operator guiding the camera um, in the top left-hand corner, um, and then the control plane, the plane in the right, which transmits the camera and also simultaneously attacks um, ships. Um, so the, the sides may be different for you. Um, so this is the proposal. Um, it's written by Vladimir Zorikin. So those of you who are familiar with media histories will recognize Zorikin. He's sort of often promoted as one of the fathers of television. Of course, there's all a number of other competitors. Um, and early television, as we know, was not sort of fixed or determined in the ways in which um, we think of it as occupying, as, as being fitting into a television set and with broadcast um, from various different stations. And so one of Zwarkin's early proposals was that television would be used as a weapon. Um, and so this is, the, this is the memorandum that he sent. And it was eventually adopted um, by a group of engineers who are working for the Navy at the radio labs in Anacostia. Um, who were um, developing a remote controlled plane. And this is their remote controlled plane. And you can see the telephone controls that are associated with it. And then there's this little screen where they were able to watch the television and then the central joystick. So Zorikin uh, framed the drone always as uh, something that was akin to a suicide pilot, even prior to um, the sort of institutionalization of kamikaze attacks by the Japanese Imperial forces. So one possible means of obtaining practically the same results as a suicide pilot is to provide a radio controlled torpedo with an electric eye. Um, and this uh, drew on imagery of um, suicide aircraft um, that was a tactic that was used by pilots during World War One who would be shot down and in the process of being shot down would, would try to hit a ship um, in order to wreck additional damage. Um, it 
it it's significant that in framing it on the one hand as a um, as akin to a suicide pilot, simultaneously Zorkin claims that this is an example of technological advance and a, a way in which it would make the American military forces much more humane. So there is this um, overlay both of the idea of this sort of inhumanity of technology, but the ways in which that inhumanity can then be made humane by turning it into a tool or a technology that leaves out the pilot or the person that we protect and attacks the other. Um, and then this takes on very strong racialized language once uh, World War II begins. Um, and it is very strongly figured as the counterpart of kamikazes. Um, and in one of the sources in my book that I spend a lot of time talking about is that this book published in 1984 called American Kamikaze. Um, and again, these uh, describe a set of missions that happen in the Pacific, Pacific theater of war. Um, so they're operating in places like the Solomon Islands. Um, and um, I, this is significant because I, I will briefly mention Operation Crossroads, which also happens in the Pacific. And so you can think about the ways in which these drone flights, which were experimental at the time and top secret, um, were also ta taking place in these um, these Pacific Island landscapes. Um, so these are some stills from what the television guided system looked like. And I have some stills a little bit later on of contemporary American drone aircraft. And so I think it's worthwhile to think about the connection between those. Um, and then this is the landscape shot where it, it looks like a kamikaze flight, right? So you can see the drone actually crashing into the ship and exploding, um, and that's operated by remote control. Um, so one of the operators describes this, and this is this dissociation that I think happens through technology. And I talk a lot about, a lot about the politics of disavowal in my book. Um, and the ways in which the drone is not just a kind of imperial eye, it's also this way of disconnecting. Um, and so the operator says, yeah, I got shot down once or twice, which in and of itself is an astonishing claim because if someone was shot down, they probably wouldn't be able to relate it in that way. Anti-aircraft fire just brought it down. And then they switched to it down, which is the drone aircraft. So. I got shot down and then it got shot down. I didn't have control, but the picture was still on the screen. So he was controlling it by television. And all of a sudden I was looking straight down and I couldn't do anything about it. If it had been a piloted plane, I'd have been shot down. It would have been a funeral. Um, so again, in these early operations, we can see the sort of working out of the relationship between the drone and the operator and the sort of overlay on the one hand between the drone and the operator and then the disavowal um, and the ways in which this is then fit into a racialized context of war. This set of missions though, which you know, were heralded as the future and as the sort of way of um, orienting warfare were canceled at the end of World War II. The whole entire experiment was considered a fiasco. 
Um, it was a, a denounced by Vannevar Bush, who those of you who study sort of the history of Cold War America was kind of the czar of scientific research. Um, he stated, we do not need to go into this fiasco in detail. It is an illustration of what can happen when military requirements are written by enthusiasts of very little grasp. Um, and so much of the ideas for weaponry after World War II dismissed the idea of television guidance or remote control guidance, and instead focused on internal inertial guidance systems, um, ballistic type missiles, um, and it, it isn't until much later in the 1980s that interest in these weapon systems is sort of renewed. And again, this comes back to what I was talking about at the very beginning of some of the cyclical um, nature of drone aircraft where a whole set of these systems is totally dismissed. And then 40 years later, you see the same idea of television guidance emerge and embraced as the sort of future or the new way of going forward. Um, and again, that we can think about the contemporary moment as perhaps also an expression, um, an expression of this. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the Fire Bee target and the reconnaissance drone. Um, I'm running a little bit short on time, so I'm going to just quickly mention um, that the drone aircraft um, were, were there were 5,000 television sets that were made by RCA. Um, to develop drones. They were considered sort of um, military surplus um, and the military surplus um, was part of what was deployed to Operation Crossroads in the Pacific for the atomic weapons test. And, and let me just go back to this image that I showed you at the very beginning of the drone as a push button war the drone, a portent of, of push-button war, um, these drone aircraft that are being demonstrated here come out of a synthesis between the Army and the Navy projects. Um, and they were deployed at crossroads in order to capture um, photographic and film footage of the atomic explosions. I've been trying for a long time um, to try to figure out what exactly the drones were recording. Um, it's pretty clear that probably some of the iconic images that we know from Operation Crossroads were actually taken by drone aircraft. Um, I haven't been able to figure out which ones. Some of them were also taken um, by manned aircraft. And I think the ways in which you can't really tell the difference is perhaps part of the illustration of this problem between the ways in which manned and unmanned are set up in opposition to each other, but are actually a blurry set of relationships or a confusing set of relationships. And the ways in which I came across these materials, and again, this is discussed in, in greater detail in the book, um, is a whole uh, scrapbook <coughs> of, of the um, mission in um, the Bikini Atolls, um, and in this book, I was really struck by the ways in which the image of the drone's operation comes directly before a kind of ethnographic interlude in the book, um, which um, was done by the same team of, of photographers that were operating the drones. They also 
um, conducted interviews and took pictures of the inhabitants of Bikini Island to create a historical archive or a record of them um, before they were forcibly removed. Um, they were removed and they left the island with the understanding that they would be able to come back at some point and have not been able to return to the land. Um, those of you who are familiar with the ongoing struggles of the Marshallese and the, the inhabitants of Bikini Island, right, that, that followed uh, a numerous um, nuclear weapons test and total contamination of Bikini Atoll by the American government. Um, and there's ongoing cases for reparations. The United States has paid some reparations, but there is demands for more. Um, which left these lands um, completely decimated. There's a lot more details about, about this and, and numerous histories have been written about the Bikini Islands um, and the Bikini people. What was so striking to me is that that is completely connected with this um, fascination with drones in 1946. Um, and in, this, in this, this scrapbook, we saw images of drones, then we see images of the native inhabitants we see them removed from the island and then the sort of horrific images of the nuclear explosions. And I'm just narrating that for you um, because I think, again, it says something to us about time and colonial time or how colonial time is imagined as evolving, progressing, right? We record the past in order to preserve it and then move on in the future with our shiny technological objects. That's a little bit of a reduction, but I think there's something really salient there about the ways in which technologies are imagined as the sort of like inevitable replacement for um, indigenous ways of knowing, indigenous ways of being, other ways, non-Western ways of occupying, uh, non-Western ways of being in the land, not the colonial occupation of the land. And I think there, it's not just that the drone itself um, pictures uh, territory as, as enemy territory or pictures this relationship between um, enemy and, um, and um, friend or imagines who is protected and who is saved. Um, but it's also the ways in which it imagines a sense of progress and erasure um, and part of what is being um, imagined in that process is the erasure of the forms of being and knowing that are below, um, that are on the ground. Let me take you to the scenes in the United States because they illustrate the same thing uh, in a different way. Um, so drones built in the 1950s um, drew on the iconography of the American Western. So this is another drone um, that was uh, developed uh, in the aftermath of the Cold War. This continued to be a target drone, um, but it would later become the basis of a reconnaissance platform in Vietnam. And it was promoted as the villain um, in the Western. And you can see here how it uses um, the image of a Mexican looking person um, to, to, to exemplify this. Um, and then how the use of the drone is actually talked about as a duel. And the press materials um, really also use this idea of a desolate American West, of course, er erasing indigenous histories in the United States. 
um, and erasing the ways in which the Western lands are all occupied lands. Um, and instead describing the drone as speeding on its lonely way over the desolate sands of New Mexico, the Ryan Fireby pilotless drone presents a spectacle as eerie as an uninhabited missile from another planet. Linked with human intelligence by electronic radiation, the obedient Q2 responds to commands from a remote controlled ground station until its fuel is exhausted and an ingenious parachute recovery system brings it back to earth. Um, and again, to just sort of think about how this idea of the drone as a smart weapon um, is also part of this moment. Um, the drone was promoted as a Q, as the Q2, which was the military designation for it, Q2 with the IQ. Um, and this drone really was not a smart weapon. Um, it's it's a, a remote controlled drone that was basically used in order to practice shooting down missiles. Um, oh, to, to, to use missiles were used against it to practice shooting them down. Um, and it, the sort of IQ components were basically a system that meant that the drone would not crash as it came landing down and instead um, helped to stabilize um, how it, 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 it um, how it basically flew into the air and how it um, would come down. Um, and it could not actually land, which is why it had to be picked up by a parachute. Um, so it would sort of come down um, closer to the ground and then a parachute would be launched and it would be picked up by a helicopter. So again, the sort of incredible amounts of work that actually had to be done to have a pilotless aircraft, the operation of these drone systems required not just the drone and the operator, but a team of helicopters um, for the retrieval of the drone, and they were usually launched from another aircraft. So again, the ways in which this drone imagines a pilotless smart plane as if there is no human involved, but it actually involves a whole network and team of personnel behind the scenes. And just to sort of this imagery of the drone in the American West translates into the ways in which the drone was used um, in Vietnam, um, and uh, this, the drones were promoted widely as being um, a tool against the um, North Vietnamese. Um, and these projects were ultimately, one of the final projects was known by the name Buffalo Hunter. Um, and it, it was promoted um, as a project um, to, to um, have more accurate reconnaissance, um, but in the um, Air Force's own assessment of the project, it indicated that the drones flew off course approximately 70% of the time. And most of the drone missions, there were over 2000 of them produced little actionable intelligence um, from all of the operations that were flown. So these were one of the one of the operations that were flown. And so again, you can sort of think about what is being produced, how a scene of war is being staged through the drone aircraft, what we sort of see of the scenes below. And um, I, I choose this photograph 
as well because the drone took um, basically these giant strips of, 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 of images um, and then they would be cut down in order to just find the specific area that you wanted to see or you wanted to get more detail or more information on. Um, but it's really profound to sort of see how this final image here um, where you can see the anti-aircraft guns um, obscures the larger image here, which is shows you the ways in which that this is right next to a village um, and is right where people live, right? And so the sort of embeddedness of civilian domestic life and, um, and war is really apparent in this photograph and the sort of duality or the separation we imagine between the field of war and um, uh, the, the area that is not outside of war, um, I, I think is, is, is um, troubled by the very images that the drone is taking. I mean, I, again, what would it mean if we think about the drone drones that are flying today as mostly not taking images of war, but mostly collecting scenes of domesticity in everyday life. Um, how does that set of views um, trouble what we are told about these missions, but also trouble what we think they're doing or what kind of site we imagine that they're using? I just want to uh, end up with um, a set of images from the American War on Terror. Um, and I wanna come back to some of the sort of questions of vision that we see throughout this. And I just wanna go back to these early grainy images from um, the American kamikaze operations. Think about the problem of um, sight and how we imagine sight as happening through the drone. So, Virilio is often a theorist that drone scholars cite, and Virilio, I think, really made some amazing insights about war and vision and the ways in which the camera um, ties to the field of war. But I think there's another side to this where the war vision um, is pretty blind um, and misses a lot of what is happening in the ground below. Um, and one of the things that I was struck with, struck by, is how grainy so much of all of the drone footage is. Um, and again, we might think about how the idea of drone futures is often applied here. We're told that always, you know, in the future, the video will be better. It'll be more precise. It'll be more exact. We'll get closer to having, um, you know, this. Um, Borges ideal of a one-to-one -one map of the world. If we instead bracket this question of whether it's getting better or not, and instead just look at what the images are doing, there's always so much that can't be seen. Um, there's so much that's blurry and out of, out of it, it doesn't make sense and is out of context. And to come back, you know, to think about the ways in which um, drone vision may be something like zoom vision and our, our experiences of zooming into different places and different times, right? So you do have this experience of sort of seeing me in my office in Washington, D.C., but there's so much that is not in this frame that is left out. That So on the one hand, there is a sense of connectivity for which I'm very grateful and it's truly amazing. It's not a time when I could travel to Australia. But at the same time, 
the ways in which this form of connectivity and immersion um, also obscures, you know, tons of really important details that may be incredibly relevant politically and ethically in terms of thinking about how we act and what we do. Um, and if this form of seeing, right, becomes increasingly normal, what, what are we missing? What don't we see? What, what, what doesn't fit into these sense of the sense of vision? So it's not just that the drone is maybe an all-seeing eye of empire. It's that it acts like an all-seeing eye of empire when often it fails and can't see. Um, the platforms do not function the way we want them to. And so there is an imagined ideal of how a drone mission or operation is supposed to happen um, but rarely do the drones, um, but most of the, at least a portion of the time, the platforms do not do what they're expected to do. And uh, just as a kind of final anecdote, right, I think it's useful to think about the ways in which um, um, drones continue to crash today. And according to a Washington Post report in 2016, um, one third of all Air Force drones crashed. Um, um, so, and that number had not decreased since the sort of widespread use of American drones starting in 2008 and the war on terror. So how do we have to view this platform differently if it's not a shiny technological object, but rather something that is broken. Um, it must be put back together by humans and requires human action over and over to animate it and to make it happen, to make it work. Um, so I, I just wanted to end on this idea of drone futures with um, one of the silliest images of drone futures that I can think of. Um, which is strangely resonant right now. Um, so I don't know how many of you have seen Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Um, it's a terrible film, um, but it, it's, and, and critics sort of praised it for being so, it was so terrible that maybe it was good. Um, and in this film, there is a, uh, a evil villainess. Her name is Poppy. She's played by Julian Moore. And she uh, is a drug dealer, a global drug dealer. And in her drugs, she puts a chemical that causes paralysis and then death. And she's the only person who has the antidote to it. And I'm telling you this because there is an evil president of the United States who claims to be supportive of everyone getting this antidote, but um, actually is not. Um, and so the Kingsmen have to sort of go to Poppy and make sure that they get the antidote delivered to all of the people so that the um, malevolent, the, the malevolent American president um, does not kill, inadvertently kill uh, all of the people who have been uh, infected with this, um, this drug that has been added to drugs. Um, in order to achieve this, the Kingsman, um, this vaccine, the antidote is, is um, distributed worldwide by an amazing fleet of flying drones. This is a, right, a, a, this image we have of the 
problems of the world, right? Sort of being magically solved through a fleet of mechanical drones that will quickly right all of the wrongs that have already happened and are part of our political and ethical practices. Um, and I think that I would like to propose as the sort of alternative image, right, is, is, is we don't need a fleet of drones that's going to fix everything, right? We need really human actions to take back the idea of the machine and machine futures and instead sort of think about that as the ways in which we can act and transform. Um, so instead of being acted upon by, by the drone, that the drone is actually something that is operated by human hands. And if we want it to be used to save people, that probably is already a problematic set of rhetorics. Um, but that needs to be uh, front and center is that the drone is not doing the saving, rather it is the ways in which the drone provides a medium for human, human relationality. And through those forms of relating with each other, maybe we could come up with something that might be more just. Um, so on that note, I will finish. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of Drone Futures, a limited series on the Media Futures podcast. For more info about the Drone Futures series, visit us at www.mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review and subscribe. It really does help new listeners find us and spread the word too. Special thanks to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen-McKinnon and to our research assistant, the brilliant Madeleine Weber. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Australian Research Council. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.